Hello, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. This is our look back at the top stories of 2023, the newsmakers and the news that really shaped the year. It's always a challenge to look back at a whole year and figure out what really stood out. But from wild weather and wildfires, affordability, inflation, housing and interest rates, an eventful year in federal politics, with the Conservatives now on the ascendancy, several provincial elections, and a hard dose of reality for Canada on the world stage, we put together a great bunch of stories, a great bunch of guests to look back at the kind of year that 2023 was. Let's begin though, with a story that really dominated the headlines from early spring all the way through into the fall, and that was extreme weather. From record-breaking wildfires that saw more than 6,400 of them burning across the country between March and late October, forcing tens of thousands of people out of their homes. Canadians from coast to coast to coast are watching in horror the images of apocalyptic devastation and fires going on in uh, communities that so many of us know and so many of us have friends in. This is a scary and heartbreaking time for people. It was. And it wasn't just the fires that were big news, keep in mind, but that thick blanket of smoke that impacted millions upon millions of people, causing air quality alerts and evacuations here at home in the U.S. And in late June, that smoke even crossed the Atlantic, reaching Europe, putting Canada in the headlines, perhaps in a way that we're not used to, even in New York City. I have COPD and I have asthma. This could kill us. This could literally kill us. And it wasn't just the fires. 2023 was, of course, the warmest year on record and one of the driest here at home. And the heat, uh, and with the heat, the Earth's average temperature hitting record highs this summer frequently. Months of sweltering global temperatures, again, easily put 2023 on track to be the year Earth's hottest year since record keeping began 150 years ago. It's not just records being broken, which as we move into a warmer world, we would expect the world to be to be warming and therefore more records to be broken, but that they are being broken at ever-increasing magnitudes is itself quite concerning. So with more on the wild weather in 2023 here at home and abroad, joining me now is David Phillips. He's a senior climatologist with Environment and Climate Change Canada. David, thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, Ben, thank you for inviting me aboard. I always enjoy these end of the year chats and we can talk about, we sort of forget the weather that's happening in Canada, but yeah, boy, when you, you hear year. about it, it really think, wow, what a year it was. No, I mean, I, I listen, we talk about the weather every year, but 2023 mm-hmm. felt different. It really did feel different. It felt like the weather was front and center for almost the entire year. Let's start with the obvious one, which was the wildfire season, because this was one unlike we had ever seen before, both for the amount of land that burned and also the smoke and the attention that was paid to it. Oh, Ben, you're so right. You know, I mean, I, I've been doing this for 28 years, uh, gathering the top stories and then chatting about it at the end of the year. But to me, this was clearly by long shot the, uh, the big one ever because it was truly national. It was impactful to so many Canadians, millions of Canadians. It got attention around the world. I mean, you know, the land of the polar vortex all of a sudden became the land of the big smoke. And um, and that really uh, shook people up in Europe and, of course, the American uh, United States. I mean, you talk to 100 million Americans and they were breathing that Canadian air that that always seems so 
so polished and washed, but this time it had a, a foul smell to it. But but you're right. I think the area burned was was just phenomenal. I think the the about five percent of arboreal forest disappeared this year because of the of the fires. When you look at it, it was about two and a half times, two point six times the the worst previous year in Canadian history. And and Ben, if this will impress you, I'm sure. If you take all of the wildfires in the United States for the last five years, they still would not match the woodland burn in Canada this year. We had records in British Columbia, Alberta, Northwest Territories, Quebec, and Nova Scotia. All those jurisdictions had never seen so much area burned. And and of course, it, it was weather-driven. I mean, it was just too hot, too dry, too windy, too long. And and when you look at those numbers, Ben, it... it you know, Calgary, I used to live in Calgary and uh, as a teenager, and that was many years ago. But, but you know, you could see the mountains from your, you're often your front window and, and you couldn't see across the street. I mean, over, uh, I think it were 500 hours of smoke. I mean, they normally get six hours a year. And there were some places in northern Saskatchewan and northern British Columbia that had over a thousand hours of smoke and haze. So, the air was foul. And, and Ben, we don't know what the long-term implications from a health point of view of breathing that smoke for so long is. So, no. hey, yeah, it was a, a really a, 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 a very fiery, smoky year in Canada in 2023. Right. And I'll always remember those photographs on the front page of New York newspapers saying, you know, oh. what is this? What a thank you. No, thank you, Canada. What was what was driving that? Was that simply, I mean, because we've had, I guess, the record wildfire season in of itself, but we've had big wildfires before, but we haven't seen the smoke move that way before. Yes. I think there's sometimes, you know, I, I hate to say it doesn't sound very scientific. Sometimes it's just bad luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the weather, the winds patterns were such that they were coming from the north. And we had cities competing for the most polluted city in the world. I mean, it was Montreal and Ottawa and Toronto at times and certainly Calgary. And and they they were for a day or two number number one and very, very poor. But the, the winds were the, the fires, of course, say in Quebec and were, were in the northern north of Montreal in that part of the near James Bay and, and further south. And just the winds uh, it was actually a pressure pattern over Maine that caused the winds to kind of just almost like a vacuum cleaner, just sucking those that smoke right from the north and right through the uh, the populated parts of uh, of Canada and into the United States and uh, and fumigating those um, those areas. And and, you know, they were so massive, Ben, and they couldn't put them out. I mean, rain didn't put them out. I mean, even fighting them couldn't put it out. They they needed wind shifts to sh- change the winds from a different direction. So it it really was in all fronts just a, a, an incredible year. I mean, hopefully we don't repeat that. But hey, that is really I think a pattern that we might see over again. But but also the 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 warm temperatures, and, the heat. And, yeah, I was going to ask about that because I mean yeah. clearly we paid attention to places like Arizona where they had the record run of one hundred yes. degree days, but it was hot everywhere this year, everywhere. It was, you know, Ben, and we heard words like blistering and baking and broiling. <laughs> I mean, Canada was warm, but the world was even warmer. And a new record set worldwide in terms of the warmest summer on record. And even when you add the months of May and September, those five months, we never have seen a warmer period. And this is sort of interesting for me as a climatologist, Ben. If you took that, that period from May to September and you looked at nationally and every jurisdiction except Atlantic Canada had their warmest five months on record. 
And, and for me, as a climatologist, I was fascinated by what happened in the north. I mean, places like Fort Good Hope and Norman Wells. I mean, within sight of the Arctic Circle, they were warmer than Toronto was this year. They got up to almost 38 degrees on July the 8th. 0.1 of a degree from being the warmest place so far north in the entire planet Earth. But, you know, try telling people in Quebec and Ontario that it was a hot summer. You know, Ben, especially in Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto, we didn't have any days above 30. I mean, that's by definition of a hot summer. Well, we didn't have any of those days from about the middle of July to Labor Day. We were shut out. And yet we had, Ben, it wasn't intensely hot, but it was the longest summer. We had those 30-degree days. Those are the dog days of summer, kind of. We had them in April. We had them in the sizzling September, and we had them in October. So it was the longest summer, Ben, but not intensely warm in 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 uh, southern Ontario, in southern Quebec. But boy, when you stuck a thermometer anywhere in Canada from May to September, no other time in seventy six years was it warmer. David, uh, we'll move to a different element now, uh, David. Mm. And water temperatures were getting an awful oh. lot of uh, attention this year because, wow, they were high. And we saw the impacts of that here, too. Obviously, we're, a, we're, a, we're a coastal on three sides. It was warm here, too. Oh, Ben, you're so right. It's a good point you raised. I sort of focused on the warm air, but my gosh, the oceans were like hot tubs out there. I mean, we've never seen that kind of warm temperature. And, of course, the warm, air, the warm waters uh, warmed the air above it. But they also, it's the jet fuel that drives storms. So we saw some some incredibly uh, monstrous uh, uh, hurricanes this year. And in fact, the hurricane season was kind of uh, two parts. So the first, uh, the beginning, the hurricane forecaster said, well, it's going to be a quiet year or a normal year because of El Nino, because it kind of smothers these uh, trop- uh, these tropical systems in the Atlantic. But by the middle of August, they had revised their figure up. Instead of being quiet, it's going to be active because of the warm waters in the Atlantic off the coast of Canada. And some of those warm waters keeps those hurricanes or tropical systems alive. They don't just sort of die in the cold water. But in the Arctic waters, the Pacific waters were, were warmer. Uh, I think the oceans have been taking the warm waters, been taking the heat from us for a long time. And this year, they just absorbed all that heat. And boy, there was a lot left over to warm the land. But boy, the waters were, really stayed warm. Yeah. And, and, and spare a thought for Nova Scotia. I think we talked about this earlier. Oh. Spare, spare a shot, the thought for Nova Scotia this year because they got the triple whammy of flooding fires and wind at one point. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it doesn't matter where you live in Canada. You didn't have as bad the weather as that province did. I mean, we you go back a year ago. We talked about Hurricane Fiona. I mean, it's the most powerful uh, uh, hurricane ever in Canadian history, the most destructive, at least. And uh, a year later, they got Hurricane Lee. Now, it was kind of a fish storm. It stayed over the Atlantic Ocean, didn't bother anybody. It kind of came near, I think, Bermuda. But then it made landfall in the Bay of Fundy area in Nova Scotia. And it wasn't a Fiona, but it certainly had some winds that brought down trees and torrential rains and a, uh, a surf and, and wave heights of 16 meters. And so, so it really was a nasty storm. But when you, when you think about it, there, that province, I mean, they get numero uno for being the most miserable place in Canada this year. The, the hard luck story, they had that terrible fire that scorched all kinds of land and caused evacuations. And then they got a two-day rainfall that was a summer's worth of rain, one of the wettest moments in 50 years. 
And of course, it led to four deaths. That tragically, two two children lost their lives. Bridges and and, and uh, roads destroyed, and will take years to to replace those. And and the rains didn't stop then. I mean, my gosh, they first of all were falling weeks before. So hey, the the ground was already saturated when that that two day monster storm horrendous rainfall came, and then it continued to rain right to the end of the year. I, I just wondered who had the gold medal for. For wet weather, I think it was, well, it was in terms of large cities, it was St. John, New Brunswick, that had, I, I think, um, three times their normal summer. It's a wet city anyways. And then it still had the, the tropical storms in September and October to come. So five of the wettest months ever in the wettest place in Canada. Uh, that was all about uh, that. We had floods in Montreal, too. I remember there that's was... right, a flash uh, flood, right? I mean, I remember back a, to the 80s where the Dakari Expressway was flooded. It happened again, and it wasn't it, ever supposed to happen again. It did, exactly. I mean, my gosh, there were 11 expressways that were closed. And, and really, Ben, it was just because it was so wet in July. I mean, record in terms of Montreal, Sherbrooke, and Quebec City, the Saguenay, it just wouldn't stop uh, stop raining. You look back, there are records that go a century and a half back and never a wetter July than this particular one. So just too much uh, rain. And it wasn't a tropical storm. It was lots of tropical moisture, Joe. Just day after day, the same kind of repeated rounds of rain, embedded thunderstorms, and it just, you couldn't turn the faucet off. And so we saw record rains in Montreal. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine every year you don't have too much trouble figuring out what the weather stories of the year were, but this year it feels <laughs> like there was a lot of stuff competing. Uh, did we leave anything out? I, I, I know there were, I mean, clearly we've forgotten a bit Jeez. about how cold it was at one point. This goes back a while and it's happening again. Uh, and tornadoes too. That was another big story this year, if I remember correctly. Yes, you talked exactly. to the tornado center in Ontario at one point. Well, that's right. I mean, we saw about 82 tornadoes this year so far. We're still counting them. So 82, 39 of them in Ontario, only one in Saskatchewan, and they sometimes can lead the way. So kind of weird. But the most powerful tornado was occurred in just about 70 kilometers north of, of Calgary. And it was a, a, what we call an EF4, winds of 275 kilometers per hour, the strongest Alberta tornado since the Edmonton Killer Tornado about 35 years ago. And that one just took down, I mean, 12, 12 homes were demolished. I mean, these were well-constructed homes, not trailer parks. These were uh, good constructed homes. And so no deaths, a lot of farm animals died, but boy, that was a nasty one. But people in Ottawa were kind of worried, Ben. They had five tornadoes in the city this year. And that combines with uh, others in the last six years. They've had 20 in total. They're wondering whether they're becoming the tornado hotspot of Canada. Well, six years is not a trend make, and more science and observations are needed before we can say, hey, the snowiest national capital in the world and the third coldest is also the tornado capital of Canada. We still have a, a ways to go to prove that. That's all That's all Ottawa needs is to be known as Tornado <laughs> Alley. Right. David Phillips, as always, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben, so much. I love doing it. From early May right through to the end of August into September, we were talking about wildfires and the incredible impact they had on so many Canadians this year, just about every week. Uh, often we were talking about two different wildfires in the same show. It really felt like that was the one story that dominated the year. We talked a bit about it with David Phillips just now, senior climatologist, um, but we wanted to zero in a bit more on just the kind of wildfire season we had, because we had a record 
wildfire season in Canada this year. We've had bad years in the past, of course. Um, few can forget the devastation, obviously, in Fort McMurray back in 2016 or the destruction of Lytton, B.C. in 2021. But this year, in terms of the scope and scale, just felt like it was on a completely different level. Between March and October, get this, 6,551 fires were declared across the country. 6,551 between March and October. Every province was impacted in some way, shape, or form. As a record, 180,000 square kilometers burned. That's the size of Greece. Imagine that. That is more than double the previous record set back in 1995. It began with a vengeance in Alberta in early May, if you can think back to then, with the province declaring a state of emergency on May the 6th. Raymond Superno of East Prairie Metis Settlement, Metis Settlement describes what he saw. That fire, I called the devil. i never seen such a fire in my life. Never. i never seen a fire like that come that quick and fast and go through go through the settlement and burn everything in its sight. Little did we know that that emotion, that story would be repeated again and again and again this year. The next month, the Donnie Creek wildfire became the largest wildfire on record in BC, surpassing the size of PEI, 5,745 square kilometers, just massive. Then in August, the McDougal Creek wildfire swept through West Kelowna, destroying homes and forcing more people to flee. Night turned to day because of the orange glow uh, of the clouds um, and the fire that was happening. Uh, and the firefighters who fought that fire held that ground. Uh, they saved homes, uh, too numerous to list, uh, in West Kelowna estates. West Kelowna's fire chief there uh, back on August the 18th. The Northwest Territories coped with fires from June onward, as we well know. But that all came to a head in mid-August, as well as with the evacuation, with the evacuation of the capital, Yellowknife, and most of the 20,000 people who call it home forced to flee on the one safe road out. Yeah, basically the rest of our lives. I mean, I've got our kids um, and our puppies. That's the important stuff. The family got out and we're safe. But otherwise, yeah, like we've got... My wife was born in Yellowknife. We've got a lot of roots there, and it's all left behind the house. Hopefully it'll survive. I'm sure it'll be fine. Fortunately, he was right. Uh, The fires came close, but uh, the city itself was undamaged. Nova Scotia saw the largest recorded wildfires in its history. Quebec burned. And all through it, crews from across the country and around the world fought the flames. Uh, Some lost their lives this year, tragically. Uh, It was an incredible effort put in all year by those who are asked to go out and try and protect homes, protect cities, protect people, and fight back those flames. So what causes led to such a massive and widespread, devastating wildfire season in this country? What lessons can we learn from it? Joining me now is Robert Gray. He's a wildfire ecologist and president of R.W. Gray Consulting. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. When I look at what happened this year, I mean, you know, wildland burnt the size of sort of, I think it was roughly the size of Greece. I mean, it was just an unbelievable year. And yet it felt like it was the year that people such as you had been warning about for quite some time. Uh, that's that's correct. You know, we've been seeing this trend developing since about the, you know, about 2000, early 2000s. And uh, it's interesting if you if you actually chart it out, you'll see that there's this really kind of amazing trend line. It's amazing from a statistical perspective. It's scary from a fire behavior and fire effects perspective. But yeah, we've been on this very steady march to uh, increasing area burned over time. The modeling suggests that, you know, we're going to see 
similar conditions to this in the future and likely worse as well, which is very unfortunate. What is going on out there? Because I think we think back to, you know, the Fort McMurray fire and so on, and, and there have been bigger, more dramatic episodes in our fire history even recently but this year felt like it was it was just the conflation of so many happening one right after each other so we started with alberta and then it was then it was quebec and then the northwest territories and bc it just felt like it was never ending this year yeah it really was never ending you know we 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 typically see an early boreal fire season you know it dries out northern alberta northern bc you know across the boreal you know zone in, in canada and then it, we, you know, we will typically see kind of by June, things will green up and, you know, the fire season will sort of take a bit of a nosedive for you know, a short period of time. And June is kind of that critical green up month, whether we get the precip or not. And then, you know, the, the Rockies and BC start to kick in kind of July, August, September. That pause never happened this year. It just kept rolling along. There were certainly periods when, you know, we got some precip, but the amazing thing was, you know, even after days of 30 to 50 millimeters of precip within a week that was back to burning again. Um, so the ignitions never let up. The weather was very conducive to just continued fire spread. We got very large fires, which it, the weather puts them out. We don't put them out. So once we get these large fires, they're just going to keep going, you know, throughout the season. It's basically winter that puts those fires out. So, so it was, you know, a combination of we were primed for this. We had, you know, we've had a bit of a drought that's been occurring for the last couple of years since about the last El Nino, it's gotten developed. And then we never got that pause as far as that sort of June precip that kind of really sets the fire season. And so we were off to the races, fires got bigger, way beyond the capabilities of anyone to, to you know, kind of extinguish or suppress these things. The last fires were pretty much kind of contained by October. Did you see anything in the fire behavior this year uh, that surprised you? I mean, I think at times we talked about, uh, I think there was a fire that jumped at the lake in Kelowna. I mean, it seemed like the fire behavior this year was more intense than it had been in the past, at least maybe not in, for one specific, but as a whole, that the fires were behaving a bit differently this year as well. Yeah, we can we can attribute a lot of that to the drought. With that antecedent drought, the preceding year's drought, uh, the ground fuels, which is duff, organic soils, large logs, they're dry right off the hop. So they're dry early in the fire season. So if all of these fuels are basically dry enough to go early in the year, then the entire vertical fuel bed layer from ground fuels to logs and litter to trees and branches and those the whole bit, the whole thing's ready to go. And so what we saw this year was, you know, the kind of fire behavior that's generated from the release of massive amounts of energy. You mentioned the McDougal fire, which is the one in West Kelowna. It's spotted across the lake. It actually generated a tornado. But that is, that's a consequence of a massive amount of energy released in a very short period of time. We also saw this year a record number of pyrocumulonimbus columns. So these are those these are those convective columns that generate, you know, that they basically, they, they, they pass up through 30,000, 40,000 feet elevation, and they can spawn new fires through, through lightning and, and, um, and strong downdrafts and the whole bit. And, and I think the previous record globally was about 60 in one fire season. I think we had 20 in BC, just, just in BC. So, so those are all you know, symptomatic of lots of energy um, that's, primed for release because the fuels were just so dry. 
And we saw, and, and I was thinking of Lahaina as well, which is clearly not here, but but just the destruction that we saw this year too, which was a reminder, of course, I mean, many of these fires happened in areas where there aren't many people, but the ones that did, it, it felt like all that warning about encroachment and so on uh, hit home again this year. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We have a problem with people living in the wildlands and, you know, we haven't done, we haven't been very successful on basically making that condition any safer or reducing fire behavior there. And then there's just the larger landscape. We have a bit of a wildland urban interface problem in BC as does other parts of Canada, not like California and Montana and places like that, but we do still have a problem. But it's also just the rest of the landscape. We have a landscape that's just packed full of fuel and it's a very changed condition today from what it was, you know, 150 years ago, or you know, pre-settlement, pre-colonial period, when there was a lot more fires occurring and you didn't have this homogeneous, fueled-up landscape. When you look at, I mean, one of the things that struck me too this year was just the sheer scale of the evacuations that had to be carried out because, because as you mentioned earlier, the intensity of these fires and the need to prepare for the absolute worst. So we saw, I mean, the entire city of Yellowknife had to be cleared. We saw evacuations throughout the year, West Kelowna, another one of them, but many, many, many. And it felt like not only were the fires behaving in a way that was more intense and more dangerous, but the reaction to them had to be all the more better safe than sorry as well. Uh, Yeah, for sure. There were actually some communities in Northern Alberta, Indigenous communities that were evacuated three times this year, unfortunately. And it's all too often that often it's these, these Northern and Indigenous communities that are being impacted the worst. But you know, when we have these conditions manifested fairly early in the fire season, it's really incumbent upon emergency management to to be prepared. And for individuals who live in the rural parts of Canada, which is a lot of Canada, to be prepared. There, I think there was a statement made fairly early in the fire season by someone um, in Ottawa that um, uh, this kind of snuck up on us. And it's like, well, no, not really. You know, the, the climatologists and, and other fire scientists, you know, they, they could see what was coming. But the reality is that this can happen any year. We can go from uh, a pretty good snowpack to a late spring. You know, we're still accumulating snow and it can come off so fast that you go from what is perceived to be a benign condition. We're not going to have much of a fire season because we got this great snowpack. Those correlations, no, they don't hold anymore. You know, snowpack and fire season, there is no correlation anymore. And things can happen on a dime. So 2017, 2018, we had, those were earlier record fire seasons, and they had pretty good snowpacks well into the spring. But they came off really fast. That's the pattern that we're seeing with climate change. The snow comes off very quickly in the spring, and we can go from, abundant moisture in the woods to a deficit of moisture in the woods very quickly. So every year can be a bad fire year. So be prepared if you live in rural Canada, that whether it's outside Halifax or outside Grand Prairie, you need to be prepared to know where you're going to go. If you've got livestock, know what you're going to do. Make sure you've got all your insurance covered on your house, all those things. But, you know, that's that's the reality going forward. Uh, Robert, I know I know this has been talked about and this has been a gradual, as you mentioned earlier, a, a gradual increase in the kind of fire activity and intensity that we've seen. It, and it does ebb and flow over time. But when we look at what happened in 2023, what are some of the lessons do you think we should be walking away from this with? Because you've mentioned, I mean, it may be better in 2024. Who knows? Maybe we'll have a quiet fire season, but we'll have another 2023 again, probably fairly soon. Correct. Correct. Yeah. 
uh, we're likely to have three of these out of every five years, something like, you know, something on order, something like that. So for sure, the lessons coming out of 2023 are really no different from the lessons we should have learned from 2020, you know, 2021, uh, 2018, 2017. We're still in this reaction mode. You know, we're still in the response and recovery mode. And there's so much good science around the fact that, you know, that's that's a that's the wrong way to go. In fact, I think it was the fire chief from West Kelowna who shortly after that fire was invited to the UN and said that we're spending money on the wrong end of this thing. So whether it's Sendai or the UN, everyone is is basically telling us disaster management, we have to shift the focus to prevention and mitigation up front. The only way out of this this trend, which is, as I mentioned earlier, it's this massive energy release, is to tackle where the energy is coming from, and that's the fuel. So on a larger scale, we have to do something about how fueled up our landscape is. And that means changing how we do forest management, um, how much prescribed burning and cultural burning that we do, how we manage wildfires. You know, we can certainly look at modified suppression using wildfires themselves to kind of build these kind of fences on the landscape to fire spread, species conversion from conifers to hardwoods. There's a whole suite of things that we can do. And those are the things that we have to do, but we have to do it very rapidly at scale. And we haven't done that. This is the shift that we have to make. Other jurisdictions have adopted this. You know, the the U.S. is very much spending billions and billions of dollars on this, and it's for the right reasons. If we continue to have these multi-billion dollar, this was a $1 billion fire suppression year, but those indirect and additional costs are two to 26 times the suppression cost. So this was likely, this will likely end up being a 10 or $15 billion fire season on top of a $10 billion fire season in 2017 and 2018 and 2021. How long can our system continue to pay out of pocket for this one disturbance that's occurring? We're trying to get prepared for that eventual earthquake, which is going to be in the order of 30 to $70 billion. So the money we spend up front today will pay dividends down the road. But the longer we wait to do that, the more expensive it's going to become. And then there, there may be some point in the not-too-distant future where we may not be able to turn things around at all. We we just can't do things at a, at a pace and scale that's that's you know adequate enough to try to start to ratchet down area burned at high severity. That's the concern. Yeah, I think one lesson that we all I mean, every time huge fires erupt, people talk about bringing in more water bombers, and this was one of those years that I think proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that that just doesn't work anymore with the with the scale and scope of the fires that we're seeing now. No, and and especially when you're trying to bucket a fire like the Medugal fire, which is, you know, being driven by, you know, 60K winds and the relative humidity is 5%. And, you know, every drop that you drop from the bucket evaporates before it even hits the fire. Uh, and you can't do much in 60K winds anyway. Yeah, that throwing that resource at it is inadequate. We could certainly build capacity for suppression of fire management. That's what we need to do. This this idea of a federal firefighting force is that's, in my opinion, is not the way to go. Building that local capacity um, to do all that fuels work. And then when fire season comes, you've got local resources who know the area. They know how to basically tackle fires in that terrain. They can augment those provincial 
resources, those federal resources or international resources that are there to help. And then they go back to doing fuels work. That's helping to tackle the fire suppression side, but it's also over time going to reduce, hopefully, the amount of area burned in wildfire. So that's a more proactive approach. And that's what we need to do. Careers, professional careers, basically in fuels and fire management at a large enough scale. That's that's going to happen. That's going to have to happen across rural Canada. And that's the better approach than, you know, another firefighting force that is just once again looking at response and recovery and not mitigation and prevention. Yeah, I'm thinking obviously too of the firefighters that we, the wildland firefighters that we lost this year in those fires, right? It's been a tragic year on top of it being a destructive year. Exactly, exactly. And unfortunately, statistically, the more firefighters we throw at these things, the higher the probability that we're going to see injuries and, and fatalities. It's not the right approach to take. And yet, uh, if I if I read correctly, not every province, but province has been cutting back a bit on this stuff, not taking it as seriously as perhaps you would expect. Yeah, there, well, there's in, in addition to well, you know, certainly Alberta, you know, cutting uh, a tanker group and the rap attack program, that was a movement in the wrong direction. So, in addition to you know agencies that are, aren't staffing up adequately, there's also recruitment and retention problems too. So, this type of fire season. So I understand that there was at least one crew here in BC that I I was told had 130 days on fire. That's probably almost 10 deployments. Typical fire season, you might see five or six deployments. That's, That's anywhere from a kind of a 10 or 14 day stretch on a fire, doing some rehab and the whole bit. 130 days is, is, is not good. We talk about the impact of smoke on the civilian population. Well, firefighters are in it almost 24-7. You know, the camp is typically not too far from the fire. Well, then firefighters don't have SCBA, so they, they may have a bandana or something, but, you know, they're breathing smoke, and because they're arduously working, they're deep breathing smoke. The long-term impacts from wood smoke are quite significant, and we're finding out more and more in the future, just you know, through research, just how bad it is. So there's that impact on our firefighters. There's the stress of the job. There's the trauma from losing colleagues, either injured or killed. And then there's just this lack of recovery. If we have back-to-back years like this, you know, after you've done eight, nine, 10 deployments, you need six months, eight months, 12 months of kind of relaxed, you know, not so stressful conditions so you can recover, your body can recover. But if we continue to have these back-to-back years, we are really doing a lot of damage to our firefighters, both emotionally and physically. And that's that's really critical. This, is, this isn't this is a 25-year career job. This is a 10-year, and then you need to pivot into something else. Robert Gray, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Whether it be in housing or in groceries or just about anything else you can think of, we spoke to people who knew how to clip coupons. We talked to people who knew how to upcycle. We talked to people why the price of groceries were so high. We talked to grocers. We talked to absolutely everybody. Because if one word comes to mind when you think about 2023, that one that dominated so many conversations, whether it be around the dinner table or at work or with friends, it was the cost of living. It was affordability. The past 12 months felt like a time when rising prices and the fight against inflation had just about all of us feeling the pinch. And while that inflation has started to ease, the prices of essentials such as groceries and shelter continues to outpace headline inflation. I work for over 30 years. 
and now I can just barely afford to put a roof over my head. And, you know, that was a sentiment expressed again and again and again uh, this year. Part of the problem, of course, is rising interest rates. The purpose of that is to try to tame inflation, but it's putting the squeeze on homeowners, driving up rents. That's putting the squeeze on absolutely everyone else. In September, the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem said he was aware that rate hikes were making life more difficult for some Canadians. We're hearing directly from Canadians uh, that high inflation is hurting them. The destination is worth it. We don't want to make it any more difficult uh, than it has to be, but we do require higher interest rates. Tiff Macklem, the Bank of Canada governor, uh, back in September, talking about how they've been getting direct messages from Canadians about this issue. Uh, food inflation was a big one, of course. Overall, prices were up between 5 and 7% in 2023. It looks like it's going to cool down a bit in 2024, but every trip to the grocery store felt like an adventure. And now we have promises from the federal government to put more pressure on big grocery chains to do more. I am pleased to have seen the constructive tone of the discussion over the course of the two hours. And bottom line is that they have agreed uh, to support uh, the government of Canada in our efforts to stabilize food price in Canada. That is uh, the minister, uh, Philippe-François Champagne, or François-Philippe Champagne, uh, uh, rather. Um, Affordability, of course, front and centre this year. Why was that? What can we do about it? What can we expect in 2024? With more on that is Rabina Ahmed-Hak. She's host of For What It's Worth on the Chorus Radio Network. Rabina, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year, almost. Yes, indeed. And to you, this feels like, I mean, we've talked about affordability and we certainly talked about it in 2022, but 2023 felt felt different. Even as inflation cooled, it felt like everyone was talking about affordability this year. Well, the big issue is interest rates. And because interest rates are so high right now, a lot of our money is going towards servicing debt. So even though we might get it, we might be getting some relief at the gas pump, at the grocery store, on our household items. I mean, prices are still elevated, but maybe not as extreme as we've seen uh, in, a, in, in the last year or so. Uh, we're still paying a lot more for our mortgages, for our lines of credit debt. And that means less money to spend on things that we enjoy, like vacations, going out for dinner, renovating our home, getting things for our kids. And so for that reason, you know, money is tight for so many families. And the reason we feel it more is because we, we're not doing anything enjoyable with our cash. Yeah, I, I guess really when you get down to it, it's all about shelter, right? Although, I mean, I remember even when I, you know, this goes back a while, when interest rates were significantly higher than they were now, but we, we got so used to them being low that, and they jumped so quickly that 5% feels high these days. And a lot of people, that 5% is taking a huge bite out of their disposable income. Absolutely. So uh, in many cases, uh, if you have a variable rate mortgage and you did not fix uh, when all the rates were going up, uh, people have seen, homeowners have seen their payments uh, dub- more than double. Um, so that takes hundreds, if now a couple of thousand dollars in some cases out of your monthly budget, and depending on how big your mortgage is. And some people do have mortgages that are big enough that they've seen their payments go up by a thousand dollars. So if you think about that, that's $12,000 less a year, less a year that you can spend. Uh, 
And that uh, the money has to come from somewhere unless you're making more money or all of a sudden your investments are paying off or something has changed on on the other side. Uh, The money has to come from somewhere. And usually when we are uh, trying to really cut back, we cut back the good stuff first. And that makes us feel crummy. You know, why, why am I working if all I'm doing is paying my bills and paying my mortgage and maybe putting some away for a rainy day, but there's nothing left for me to actually enjoy. But And you'd been pointing this out, I know, uh, for years, that we had a debt issue in this country, and we all, a personal debt issue, that we were stretched too thin, and that you know this was going to be the kind of incident where interest rates started to climb quickly, uh, where people were really going to feel the pinch of it. Not to blame each and every person out there, but we, we, we had been warned, and I think we had all been warned for quite a long time, that whatever we were carrying was probably unsustainable. We have been hearing these warnings since uh, 2010, 2011, when interest rates were first cut dramatically uh, back in 2008, 2009. Now, they did creep up a, a little bit, but they never got to a point where people were feeling like their mortgages were unaffordable. And then when the pandemic hit, we saw that emergency rate cut three times, 25 basis points in March of 2020, uh, which saw rates lower than they had ever been. And throughout this entire time, whenever there was a Bank of Canada announcement, there would be uh, a bit of a PSA, you know, interest rates will not stay this low for forever. But the problem is, is that many of us think in today's terms, we think of our financial situation as a moment in time now, we don't always look ahead to see, you know, what could happen if my interest rates went up, what could happen if uh, my payments increased, what would I have to cut back on? Some homeowners, and I think in some cases, rightfully so, are saying they did not get the right guidance from their mortgage brokers. So mortgage brokers are supposed to be the experts that understand the market better than anyone. So when you get your mortgage, you go to them for advice. And they, many people I've spoke to said that they didn't feel like the mortgage broker really laid it out um, how unusual this time was with three emergency cuts in a row, um, how rock bottom mortgage rates were and how fast rates can go up if inflation is to peak. Uh, you know, part of it is you have to do your own due diligence and know that you can afford payments. And, and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, tests in place, like the stress test, for example, to ensure people could. Uh, but generally speaking, people thought I can afford this mortgage now. I'm going to get it and not worry so much about what could happen in the future. Yeah. And of course, prices were jumping so quickly that uh, that you needed those low interest rates to be able to afford half, much of the time to be able to afford the monthly payments on the kind of house you were looking at buying. They were. I mean, we were seeing double digit gains on housing throughout, uh, I mean, across the country. And especially in that first year of the pandemic, where a lot of Canadians, again, uh, short sightedness in some cases, thinking, well, this is the way we're always going to work. Let's buy a house two hours away from our job. We only have to commute in once a month because hybrid is the way that the future is going to look. And now we're seeing companies calling their employees back three, four times a week. For sure, the pandemic has proven that work from home is not an excuse to just lie on the couch. I think that most companies now understand that work from home is, is a legitimate way to, to manage your time and to manage your manage your work week. But uh, many companies still want to see you in the office more than once every two weeks or once a month. And for many people who you know ran out to suburban areas or ran out to places that you'd get a little bit more space, they're now regretting those purchases. And now in this higher interest rate environment, trying to sell that same home that they bought at the peak back in 2000 and 2021.
Rubina, one of the things that 2023 that really struck me, and this has been incremental, but it was the cost of rent that I thought was really, I mean, we've done stories on this all year about uh, rent evictions, people finding themselves unable to find anything anything else even remotely affordable anywhere near where they used to live and ending up, you know, in, in very tenuous situations, couch, couch surfing and so on. Um, that too has been a big story in 2023 was just the incredible, and this is all related, of course, but the growth or the rise in, in, in rents right across the, in most, almost right across the country. So a lot of this has to do with individuals buying rental properties and then trying to use the rent to cover most of those mortgage costs. So if you right. buy a home at the highest point and then you try to rent it out, you're going to try to ask for the highest amount of rent possible so that you can cover your mortgage payments so that that investment property actually makes sense. And so there's been a lot of criticism as to when individuals buy investment properties, there should be some checks and balances that you know they're not increasing rents just to, just to service their own costs. Um, for sure, when you go to buy an investment property, you have to have 20% down. You're no longer allowed to borrow from your line of credit in order to afford that home. Uh, so that's one one uh, safeguard that, that, that's been put into place. It's unacceptable that one in four food bank clients spend 100% of their income on housing, leaving nothing for food, clothing, or transportation. Rubina Ahmed Hawk is host of For What It's Worth on the Chorus Radio Network. We're talking on this uh, special edition of A Little More Conversation, a review of the biggest stories of 2023, in this case, affordability. We talked about it all year long. Of course, as Rubina was, was talking about, a lot of this was tied really to the cost of putting a roof over your head. Interest rates were up. So mortgage payments were up, leaving us with less to spend. Rent was up, leaving us with less to spend. And we saw that cascade through the entire economy with more use of food banks, fewer people spending uh, money out and so on. Uh, Rubina, we look at, at what could happen now. Interest rates um, are at five, but it seems like perhaps that's as high as they're going to go. And maybe they'll come down in 2024. We're seeing inflation start to cool at last. Um, does it feel like there's light uh, on the horizon here? Yeah, I, I think that the higher interest rates are working. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism uh, thrown at the Bank of Canada that they've made life more unaffordable for Canadians. But in fact, they did what they are supposed to do. They, their mandate is to keep inflation in check. And inflation, which it, when it spiked back in uh, summer of 2022, was more than 8%. And now we're sitting just above 3%. So they've done their job of getting inflation under control. If they had left it, we would have been in a much different situation. Uh, food prices, uh, it's expected that next year, the, the latest report from uh, Dalhousie University that uh, our grocery costs will go up about $700 uh, for the year. So a lot more manageable when you divide that amongst 12 months than what we've seen in the past. Uh, we're still going to see higher costs on some foods that are affected by drought or uh, shipping problems, supply problems. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, your same basket of goods is not going to go up like it has been 10% year over year. We're not going to see those major increases. Um, and now Canadians in some ways have reverted back to the old ways of thinking when it comes to shopping too. So we've picked up some good habits again of comparison shopping and shopping the sales and not wasting the food when we get home. So in, in, in some ways, one of the byproducts of these higher food prices has been that people have just become more mindful about what they're bringing home and how they're consuming it. Uh, hopefully that will last even if food prices normalize uh, in the next year. Uh, but we're definitely not going to see price, prices go down. We just won't see them go up as aggressively year over year. 
Any advice then? Because, of course, as we head into the new year, I mean, we tend to slip back into our bad habits, don't we? Uh, except for my grandmother, who grew up during the Depression and never slipped into, into any bad habits, as far as I know, her entire life. Uh, but when we look at what, what could lie ahead, what kind of advice do you have for people now? Because, of course, we've been, I think a lot of us have been really scaling back and watching our pennies over the last uh, year, year and a half, two years. Uh, what does 2024 look like in terms of advice on, I suppose it's just to be careful, right? Be careful. Yeah, be mindful, um, hang on to some of those habits that you've now uh, incorporated into your life. So one of the things I tell people all the time, and this is, you know, groceries are one of the biggest costs for families. We spend more than $15,000 a year on food every year, average family of four, according to Statistics Canada. Uh, so if you make a list before you go grocery shopping, you automatically reduce your bill by about 23%. That's what studies show. So just by being focused when you're in the grocery store and not buying things that you already have at home. So doing just a little bit of inventory. So that means opening your fridge and seeing what you have, moving things around to see what's at the back, going into your pantry to see what's already there. And then uh, when you are at the grocery store, buying stuff that you, of course, don't already have, but also um, uh, supplementing things that are already in your fridge. So if you've got a couple of zucchinis, you're buying some chicken to make a zucchini chicken dish uh, rather than broccoli and chicken, right? So you're you're trying to use up the food that's already exist, that already exists in your home. Uh, planning is always you know, going to save you money. Uh, but that little exercise of just making a list uh, definitely keeps you more focused. That It leaves some room for spontaneity. Of course, you see something on sale and you know your family uses it, you can buy that or something that you've never seen before. I, I, I'm guilty of this where uh, I bought lychees the other day, oh, which I never normally buy, but they look <laughs> so delicious. I had to buy them. They're a little bit expensive, but that doesn't mean we can't buy those things. It just means it keeps us on track and we don't end up with like four cucumbers in our fridge when you know we, we just didn't check to see if we already had that vegetable when, before we left. Any concerns at all that 2024 might see uh, me? Because I feel like a lot of people are just keeping their head above water these days. Any concerns that 2024 might see more people slipping? Because it's been a while now that people have been trying to stay afloat uh, in this with these higher expenses and so on. So the biggest story of 2024, which I think will push Canadians to the financial edge, is mortgage renewals. So in 2024 and 2025, there are a record number of fixed rate mortgages coming up for renewal. And the reason that is, is because in 2020 and 2021, uh, there were the real estate market was really hot. People were bidding more and more for homes. Now all those mortgages, even 2019, are coming up for renewal. So the 2019 mortgages, the five-year ones, are coming up for renewal in 2024. And so you may have felt really good about the fact that you went fixed and you did not get affected by uh, the higher interest rates that that variable rate mortgage holders would be uh, would would be facing. But now you're renewing in this much higher interest rate environment. So the best thing you can do is to go into a mortgage calculator and guesstimate what your payments will look like. So you're prepared for that. But for some people, it's going to be uh, payment. This, they're going to see their payments go up by 50, 60 percent. And that's money that a lot of people don't have. So they may have to dramatically adjust their lifestyle, maybe uh, scale back on some of the financial goals that they had set for themselves. Uh, and fortunately for some people, they may not be able to afford their home anymore. And they may find themselves putting their home on the market to downsize so that they can afford uh, to live in the home that, 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 that they have. Rubina, it's been a fascinating 2023. I know 2024 will be no different. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Housing affordability hit its worst level in more than four decades. 
last quarter. That, according to the Bank of Canada, as housing prices and mortgages, mortgage rates pushed even higher. There's been a real deterioration, according to Ottawa, uh, as they push for a new housing strategy uh, to try to make up for this incredible lack of housing out there. We're something like 3.5 million homes short above what the normal, we'd have to build 3.5 million more on top of what is already needed uh, between now and the end of the decade, which is just an astronomical number of houses. The impact, though, that interest rates have had, uh, the interest rate rise have had on so many people over the past year has been very devastating. Uh, This is Calgary senior John Cuffin. Um, Like more than a few Canadians this year, he was forced to sell his home. I was paying something like um, $1,100 a month. And now, um, with the increase in the interest rates, I'm, I'm paying 2600 a month. So therefore, I've had to sell the house, unfortunately. Yeah, and we've heard, heard so many stories like that this year, just devastating stories, whether it was homeowners or renters forced out of their homes, forced to try to find something else, often very difficult on the open market right now to find anything that was affordable. What's going on? High demand from population growth, of course, and a chronic lack of supply uh, is offsetting gains in household income. At least it did in the last quarter and has for a while now. Right across the country, again, families are struggling, uh, whether they own or they rent. Uh, Here's Calgary's Heather Morley speaking to Global News. We have seen over the past year a doubling in calls for help from families, Um, families telling us that they can no longer afford their rent or their mortgage, they're facing eviction. The solution, of course, is build more housing. And that task is a monumental one, especially with Canada's growing population. Uh, The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation estimates that we need to build 3.5 million more homes by 2030 over and above the current rate of construction to restore housing affordability for all of us. Of course, the federal government is perhaps at last starting to focus on this issue and has since the late summer uh, with the release of a housing action plan this fall. Housing is so connected to affordability for Canadians. And that is why our focus is supply, supply, supply. So are we on the right track at long last? Jennifer Kiesmat is founder of Marquee Development. She's the former chief planner for the city of Toronto and a distinguished visitor in planning emeritus at the University of Toronto. Jennifer, thank you so much. Well, happy to be here. This was one of those issues. I mean, we've talked about housing feels like one of those issues that we talk about every single year. But 2023 felt different. It looked different. The dialogue, the conversation felt different. It really was one of the biggest stories. What do you think changed? What do you think happened this year that made it so front and center? I think we hit a tipping point in 2023. And the it was like the floodgates opened in terms of the depth and the broadness of the understanding of the magnitude of the housing supply shortage. I really think this was the year where it was impossible this year to be a supply skeptic. (laughs) You know, I've spent the past decade of my career crunching numbers and talking about data and showing how things were on the cusp of coming home to roost. And I think in 2023, it happened in 2023, This was the year that you couldn't, with a straight face, say that there were other reasons for our lack of access to housing, whether that be rental or homeownership. This was the year where, quite frankly, you just like looked like a total idiot if you were still arguing that we were building enough housing, that there were other other factors at play. This was the year it happened. I really believe that. Right. And again, I guess it's a question. I know there's 
there's some housing out there, but really is it boils down to an issue, an issue of affordable housing, right? Housing that people can actually either rent or buy and pay for and still, and still enjoy a normal life. Well, yeah, that's it. Exactly. At the end of the day, um, the major, the vast majority of the population needs access to housing that is uh, not frivolous. It's, it's foundational to their everyday lives. It's critical to, um, being able to go to work every day and take a shower before you go to work every day. It's critical to being able to sit around the dining room table and doing homework with your children. Housing is a very, very basic human need. And so for most people, when wonky things start happening in the housing market and the cost of borrowing gets too high or the rent gets too high, it starts to have an impact on every aspect of every day of your life. So yes, it's the cost of housing, it's the affordability of housing that has been creeping up and fundamentally disconnected from wages uh, over the course of my lifetime anyway. Um, that is the, um, that's the part of the crisis that has become really acute and undeniable at this point. How did we get here? Because it feels like, I mean, you know, the population has been growing quickly, uh, faster than it has in my lifetime, at least, or, you know, and, and all of a sudden it felt like it snuck up on us. But you, this this is the kind of issue that couldn't possibly sneak up. As you mentioned, you've been talking about this for ages. Yeah, you know, it, I think one of the ways that it, that it snuck up on us is that we were just, um, whenever we talked about affordable housing, whenever we talked about significantly increasing supply, we were really tinkering at the margins. And, you know, I can look back when I was chief planner 10 years ago. Uh, I still recall vividly a city councilor standing up in, in council chamber and going on ad nauseum about the affordable housing that had been secured as part of a new housing development. There were 600 units of housing uh, that were being approved in that specific application. And six, six of the homes were affordable. And I remember sitting there and absolutely being gobsmacked at the disconnect between the scale and the magnitude of the problem and what we thought or understood were solutions. And, you know, I, I talk about this in my work a lot. Um, we often in housing are talking at the wrong scale when we're talking about solutions. If you have a really, really big fire. You don't bring a tiny bucket of water. You bring multiple fire trucks and big fire hoses. But it's like we've had this big crisis with this big fire and we brought a tiny little bucket of water to put out the fire. And of course, the flames have just continued unabated. So I think, yes, it's been building for many years. I do think that many have been talking about it for many years. It wasn't mainstream five years ago to talk about affordable housing. In fact, uh, I was often treated like I was some kind of radical lefty um, because I was saying, hey, I think we're, we're about to have like a really major crisis and newcomers and young people are going to be really pushed out of our city. And that that five years ago, that was kind of a, a radical fringy thing to talk about. And today it's something that's being talked about at every every dinner table. I think it snuck up, up on us, honestly, Ben, because we just had solutions that were much too small in relation to the problem. and. This is the year where I think we started thinking about scale and delivering housing at a different scale than we have in the past as a country. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and you touch on a really interesting point, because, of course, I've spent time over the years watching provincial politics, municipal politics, federal politics, and it felt like each of these groups was operating in a bit of a silo and therefore unable to tackle a problem, which was societal. Uh, you know, you, I would watch City Hall sort of say, well, you know, not in our backyard. And, and then when you multiply that, uh, we end up where we end up, uh, along with the fact that there hasn't been a ton of guidance from other, other levels of government either. Well, no, I think this is a really big part of what's happened. Um, there's been this sense that, and, and housing has been a little bit of a political football. So um, if we look back in the greater Toronto area, for example, there was a period of time where the government at the municipal level was much more interventionist in delivering housing. Um, back in the 70s, we built the St. Lawrence neighborhood that was 100% a city-led initiative to deliver cooperative housing and affordable housing and, and rent geared to income in a um, in a really complete community where we integrated schools into the podiums of six-story buildings. That was a municipal initiative. Um, there were times when the province played a really significant role. You know, when we look back in the 1940s after World War II, the feds played a really significant role through CMHC. And I think what's happened over the course of this past year is that there has been a lot of finger pointing of, you know, the, the feds pointing at the municipalities and saying, hey, um, you've got to loosen up your zoning bylaws. You have to enable more housing to be built. Uh, the province making big promises, um, forcing municipalities to change their zoning regulations. In some ways, I think we've actually benefited this year from some of the finger pointing that was happening over the course of the past several years that has really put every single level of government on the hot seat. And now that they're on the hot seat, they're squirming and they're starting to realize that they need, need they, they can't get away from the magnitude of this problem and that they have to do something. And that has meant, particularly for the federal government, really stretching their jurisdictional responsibilities around housing and really pushing the boundaries and getting involved in housing in ways that they haven't in the past. But I think you're right. All levels of government have been sort of asleep at the switch. As the issue has gotten hotter and hotter, everyone's been pointing fingers. As they've been pointing fingers, the understanding of the different roles at different points in the process that each level of government plays has become clearer and clearer. And as a result, that's resulted, I think, in the public demanding some accountability from all three levels of government. Um, Jennifer, there, there was a lot of there was some movement, particularly later in the year. It felt like really people started to bring in. You mentioned earlier we've been bringing a bucket to a five alarm fire for a long time. It felt like they start to get out the hoses later in the year. Um, but this is a complicated issue to try to jumpstart this. Have you seen what you've been hoping to see from all levels of government when it comes to to addressing this crisis? Well, on the one hand, it's never enough when you're so far behind. And we, for for example, we need to build. Um, double the number of homes that we've ever built annually just to keep pace with the growth that we have today. So we're nowhere near that. We're not even building a quarter of the homes that we built at our peak in the 70s. So we're just way, 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 way behind. But the interesting piece is, as you say, there has been some, there has been some movement. There are things that are happening right now that um, are brand new. And I think that is reason for hope and it does point to the complexity so let's start with the way we use land um this sounds a little bit 
I don't know, maybe even childish, but I, you know, when people talk about financing related to housing or design related to housing, look, I'm, I'm an urban planner. I always say, well, hold on a minute. It starts with how we use land. And one of the most powerful ways that we can build more affordable housing for families, for newcomers, for young people in our cities is to use land in a different way. So this is where we saw some really big, exciting movement this year. Uh, And I have to say kudos to my own city, the city of Toronto, very boldly began the year with a policy to allow fourplexes anywhere in the city. So this is significant because historically in every Canadian city, the vast majority of land is reserved for single family homes, which is the built form or the housing design that is the most highly subsidized from an infrastructure perspective. So when we change zoning and we allow that incremental change, first, you know, secondary suites, the granny suite or the accessory dwelling unit, a home behind a home, that's one little incremental change, but allowing fourplexes where one home currently sits, that is another incremental change. From my perspective, it's, it's, it's mostly symbolic in that it signals that we're beginning to think about land in a different way, in a more urban way, and really making our existing communities more inclusive. We're allowing renters, we're allowing smaller units in neighborhoods that historically have been really protected for very, very low density residential. So to me, that was that's one of the biggest things symbolically that's happened across the country. Uh, Toronto started this. Other municipalities have quickly followed suit. Calgary did it a few few months ago. Victoria has done this. Mississauga has also done it. So we're beginning to see this reorientation with respect to how we're thinking about land use and what makes a home and how we plan for housing in the 21st century. And of course, it has to be a denser more urban form of housing. So that to me is, you know, one of the first and biggest significant shifts that we saw in 2023. Right. And we've also seen the federal government, and this was the opposition also pitched this uh, not that long ago, sort of starting to put pressure, both carrot and stick, on municipalities to move faster, to build faster, or to allow for faster building. Well, look, this really, really got unlocked when we got a new housing minister, Minister Fraser, Um, So a couple of years ago, the backstory here is a couple of years ago, the federal government announced a housing accelerator fund. And for those of us in the housing industry, you know, billions of dollars for housing, we clapped our hands and said, yes, yes, love the name accelerator fund. But then, of course, it turned into a crawl because it took nearly two years for the government to figure out how to use this money and how to get this money into the hands of municipalities. You know, this gets back to that point that you made about being complicated. They announced the money to accelerate housing, but then can't even figure out how to get it out the door yeah. to get the housing. To, to get the gas pedal. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's yeah. like, okay, now how do we do this? The good news is uh, partway through the year, we got a new housing minister who became very, well, the only word I can really use is activist. He became very activist in his uh, interactions with municipalities and basically put some criteria in place for the municipalities. And and it's the carrot and the stick that you just mentioned, essentially said, look, we're prepared to give you money in order to better deliver housing, whether that means for infrastructure, hiring more planning staff, 
uh, subsidizing on a per door basis, new affordable or rent geared to income units. They essentially were saying to the municipalities, we're going to let you decide how you want to use the money that, that best fits with your municipality. However, we're only going to do that if you make substantive changes to the role that you play as the legislator, as the regulator of housing, and how you are going to expedite getting more housing built and approved. So if 2023 was the year that we really finally woke up to this crisis that had been talked about for so long. What do you see in 2024? What are you looking for now? I guess it's, I I mean, momentum is built, but we're certainly a long way from getting to where we need to be. Oh, we're still so far away. So on the one hand, of course, you want to be optimists and see the signs of change and identify what it is that we're doing differently. That's really critical because if you and I were having this conversation at the end of 2022, actually, I may have declined the interview because (laughs) I would have been so depressed because it just felt like not really that much happened. And a lot of us were, uh, you know, banging some drums very loudly, writing op-eds, screaming and shouting, and just, it it seemed like, you know, we're yelling into a void. Um, So this year, okay, wait a minute, now we're doing new things. We've actually got new things happening at the municipal level. We've got new things happening at the federal level. The um, province of British Columbia is being very aggressive in playing a substantive role around upzoning, around transit stations. So there's another sign of a significant movement and change at the provincial level. So what does that mean for 2024? Well, 2024, it gets... In some ways, this was hard, but 2024 is going to be even harder because in 2024, the government has to come out with some programs to enable the financing of construction loans because high interest rates have put a real pressure on the viability of borrowing for construction. So, okay, we've been solving some of the zoning problems, but we've got this whole bag of problems around financing. Um, So I think you're going to see, and I'm hoping you're going to see in early 2024, uh, the next piece that needs to be unlocked, which is how we how we finance housing. And when I should mention the other really significant change was the forgiveness of GST for rental homes that also happened in his uh, incredibly significant. Um, that happened in 2023 as well. So look, 2024 is going to be just as hard. And it's also not quite the shovel in the ground year yet. It's still a ramp up here. If everything goes well, we should start to see towards the end of 2024, 25, 26, is when we really ought to start seeing um, the supply ticking up significantly. That, of course, will come with its own challenges around pressure on on the construction industry and construction costs. And I know that there's people right now thinking about that problem and thinking about things like panelization and the role of modular construction in trying to mitigate the labor shortage around construction. Uh, but I think 2024 is going to have to be a bold year around making sure we can put the financial mechanisms in place to deliver on larger scale housing projects. Jennifer, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. We've been talking about affordability a lot. Obviously, that was one of the hot topics, affordability and housing. It was no less true in federal politics this year. In fact, the Trudeau government has weathered many a storm over the last eight years, but there is that ever important question in politics. Am I better off now 
than I was in 2022 or 2015? And for many this year, the answer was probably no. The Liberals, of course, aren't the only ones suffering through this. Incumbent governments around the world have been paying the price of inflation and the high cost of living. Voters are angry, and when they're angry, they want change. Uh, we did see the Conservatives this year, their first full year under new leader Pierre Polyev, really surge in the polls. And a lot of it began just as the Bank of Canada began raising interest rates again after pausing that rate hiking cycle earlier in the year. Uh, issues around the cost of living and, house and housing became a real lightning rod. And it was an issue that the opposition Conservatives managed to leverage throughout the year. They found the right tone. They found they struck the right chord, um, helping to bring the Conservatives from really what was a negligible lead over the Liberals at the turn of the year. Don't forget the, the Liberals had just come out of the whole Emergencies Act inquiry. Um, you know, they looked like they had a bit of momentum, but uh, they now have a double-digit lead in most of the polls that you see, and that built as the year progressed. The key to that strategy was a very simple question. As I mentioned, are you better off? Are you better off now than you were eight years ago? Here's the leader of the opposition, Pierre Polyev, back in January with a taste of what was to come throughout 2023. Seriously, look around you. Crime is raging out of control in our streets. Our people are desperate that they'll have to lose their homes because of rising inflation and interest rates the government promised would never happen. People are losing loved ones at record rates to violent crime and drug overdoses. And families who've been locked down for two years because of COVID are now locked down at airports when they try to get away for a small vacation. And this was a tune that Pierre Polyev would sing one way or another throughout the year. And it was effective. The Trudeau government seemed to have a hard time figuring out, especially the struggling affordability, the struggling with the economy affordability side of things. Um, and they spent much of the year on the defensive, fighting off accusations of being unsympathetic. This is Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland from late in 2022, but it kind of exemplifies the problem. Things are really challenging for Canadian families. And I think Canadian families are looking really closely at all of their expenses. I personally, as a mother and wife, look carefully at my credit card bill once a month. And last Sunday, I said to the kids, you're older now. You don't want to watch Disney anymore. Let's cut that Disney Plus subscription. Yeah. Well, she took a lot of heat for that one because clearly people's issues are a lot bigger than cutting a Disney's Plus subscription. Uh, the gov Liberal government attempted to right the ship later in the year. There was a cabinet shuffle at the end of the summer and a new focus on affordability issues. This plan is going to get more apartments built in big cities, in small towns, especially along transit lines. And they'll make sure that there are units with two or three or even more bedrooms the kinds of places families can live and grow. Well, is it too little too late? Have the Conservatives managed to seize this all-important issue as we head into what could quite possibly be a 2025 election, maybe earlier, maybe? Uh, what exactly did we witness on the political landscape in 2023? What could 2024 look like? Joining me now is Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi, as always, thank you. Ben, it's always fun to join you. Well, it's interesting. I was trying to look back at the beginning of the year, and uh, we were expecting the results of the inquiry into the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and everyone sort of felt, hey, wait a second, maybe the Liberals have turned a bit of a corner here. And sure enough, 2023 <laughs> felt like anything but. It really did feel like anything but. Yes. And I mean, it wasn't an unreasonable assumption to make 
back in January because we ended exactly this time a year ago. We saw the prime minister's numbers pop up a few a few points uh, in terms of his approval. We saw that the Liberals and the Conservatives were separated by only a couple of points in terms of voter intention. It it was still a very competitive game that is in some ways on the surface looking less and less like a thing these days. But and there's always a caveat there. You know, there's there's still a lot of runway before we really start to understand where voters are actually going to lock in with their votes. Right. I, I can't wait to look forward, but but let's I'm just curious from your perspective how we got here. Because if you look at how the year unfolded, it felt like that really Pierre Polyev personally and the party itself sort of caught a wave. All of a sudden, this was the year that affordability housing became top of mind for many, many people. And there were the conservatives talking about this in a way that that resonated, I think, with a lot of people, while the government seemed I don't know what they were doing. I don't know what they were doing on this, on this issue. Yeah. Well, there, there was that moment where the finance minister talked about canceling her Disney Plus. The notion of inflation and rising cost of living was something that actually started and had its roots towards the tail end of the pandemic and lockdown, where shelves were going empty because of supply chain issues. And then it rolled into labor shortages. And it was one thing and another. But where the chickens really came home to roost this year were those repeated Bank of Canada borrowing rate increases. And all of a sudden you had the intersection of borrowing rates increasing, which certainly put a chill in terms of people's ability and desire to go out and buy a home, which meant that more were looking to rent and let rent for longer. That, of course, put pressure on rental availability. But also... This was the year where Canadians went back into their banks to renegotiate mortgages or deal and or go and beg for mercy and relief on variable mortgage rates that had been obtained at 1.89%, 1.76%, 1.99%. And we're looking at rates now up at at, at in around like 5%, 6%. And when you think about what that means to a monthly mortgage payment, Uh, It was immediately the thing that started to put Canadians underwater over and above the pressures they had already been feeling around the price of gasoline, the price of groceries. That is what Pierre Polyev tapped into very effectively. It is the one issue that has moved the needle for the Conservatives in eight years of opposition. Incredible to think of that, because there were many other things that came up this year. There was the foreign interference file, which was a very big deal. Uh, it felt like there were some a couple of more scandals around contracts and so on. There were some problems with the machinery this year, the machinery of government. But it felt like nothing hit this. I mean, the combination of eight years in power, which is a very long time, by the way. And then all of a sudden, am I better off now than I was a while back? And if the answer was no, I mean, while the Conservatives managed to really hammer and to pin it all on the government, too, which, I mean, fairly or unfairly, everyone wanted someone to point the finger at. And Pierre Polyev was there to to provide them with the directions. You know, you can very fairly and objectively take several steps back and ask the question, how much can and should government do in those circumstances? Right. Like how much of a hand on the economy should governments have? And I think that the question around how much more could Or should uh, the Liberal government have done in terms of pulling levers 
I think that's an objective question to ask. And I think it's a reasonable debate to be had around the limits of government power. However, what Canadians were looking for was empathy. Think back to that that 1992 town hall debate. And for those of you who were younger and weren't even alive for it, go YouTube that stuff. Uh, that, that town hall debate between Bill Clinton and George Bush in that election where a woman asked a question about the economy and George Bush just did not know how to deal with that question. And he was really trying to sort of parse the, 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 the poll, like, what was she asking? And Bill Clinton got up and basically said, you know, you're worried about, pay- I'm paraphrasing, but like, you're yeah. worried about your, your own economic situation, aren't you? I, you know, that I feel your pain moment. And a big part of the challenge for this particular liberal government most of their proxies up until we saw a, a, a somewhat ho-hum cabinet shuffle late in summer, most of their proxies were not people who could authentically communicate and look Canadians in the eye and say, I know what it's like to have to make decisions around rent and food and bills and mortgage payments and kids swimming lessons because the prime minister, and it's not his fault, comes from a background that is privileged enough that he's never felt that or understood it. And he cannot, therefore, communicate that authentically. I'm not saying these people are uber rich, and I'm not criticizing them personally, but they they lacked that ability to be authentic. And what Pierre Polyev has managed to do, whether he is authentic or not in his own lived experience, is that he's managed to authentically convey that sense of People are in trouble. Canadians are in trouble. What are you doing about this? Yeah, it was ironic, of course, because, you know, a lot of this whole liberal brand for years was built around the notion of empathy and the idea that that and this was always going to be an Achilles heel, specifically for the prime minister. But it's ironic that he gets caught out being unempathetic uh, because that was often seen as being perhaps his greatest strength. Right. Right. And that empathy, I, I don't know what it was. And I think that we we looked to the prime minister in many ways to say, well, this guy's the great communicator. He's the person who who knows how to connect symbolism and scene and vignette and personal moments on camera with communication. And he's done it so well over the years. And this was the year it really just felt like the liberals on on many fronts, but especially on cost of living, just had nothing left in the tank. As Premier, I cannot, under any circumstances, allow these contemplated federal policies to be inflicted upon Albertans. I simply can't, and I won't. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. She's with us on our year in review on a little more conversation. We're looking back at 2023 across Canadian politics. Uh, lots of things happen. I mean, Wab Canoe, uh Broke barriers, first First Nations provincial premier when he was elected in Manitoba. But I guess Danielle Smith was probably the one that a lot of people were looking for because her election, her real, I mean, she hadn't been elected, but the fact that she's still premier of Alberta created a real collision course with Ottawa. And it felt like all of a sudden the Conservatives had a real ally in Alberta in terms of putting up a fight against what was happening in Ottawa, against anything that was happening in Ottawa. Well, careful what you wish for, because when Danielle Smith um, centers a, a lot of her tactics and her approach and her policy, but also her politics around looking like and also stick like not only in action, but but in image, uh, sticking it to Ottawa, 
if you're Pierre Polyev and you eventually become Ottawa, I'm using air quotes, uh, that that friend then turns into at best a headache and at worst a foe. But this this has been a year where we have seen a continued let's let's take the fight to Ottawa stance and approach from Western provinces, particularly around uh, Daniel Smith out of Alberta, whether it's threatening to pull out of the Canadian pension plan or the court challenges around jurisdiction. And, and you know, the, this actually has left the, the federal government and the liberals with some black eyes, particularly around energy policy and some of the same uh, sentiments and and messages uh, echoed next door by Saskatchewan Party leader and premier, obviously Scott Moe. So, in some ways, this this has the potential to galvanize the conservative base. But let's be really clear: when we're talking about federal conservatives in Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, they cannot be any more committed, and they don't get extra votes for enthusiasm or passion. It's a thing that makes for good drama and maybe uh, distracts from other things such as Danielle Smith in Alberta, you know, talking about overhauling Alberta health services and, and the significant amount of skepticism that a lot of Albertans have around that uh, and and it takes the focus elsewhere. But the, the dynamics around it, I think, are are fascinating in terms of it may not be the boon for Pierre Polyev that that some might see it to be. Quickly, if we look ahead to 2024, I mean, yeah. last year we thought, okay, well, the, the Liberals look like they're doing okay. 2023 was a disastrous year for the party. Uh, now we come in with the with the Conservatives with a ton of momentum, it feels, heading into 2024. But as we see, politics is a fickle game, right? Things can change fairly well, quickly. Uh, what do you see lying ahead? What's the old song? Don't build your house on a sandy land. Don't build it too near the shore. Uh, well, it may Something look kind like of nice, but yeah. you'll have to build it twice. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. And and that is very much the ground on which this CPC lead sits at the moment. When you look at and and when we talk to Canadians, they are decided in their vote intention. They know who they want to vote for. But then when we do a bit of a gut check with them and say, okay, and how absolutely locked in, not going to move, committed are you? Well, that then starts to tell a very different story. Now, to the, the CPCs, to the Conservatives' advantage, they still are sitting on the most locked in, unshakable base of all three. But that said, a significant chunk of their vote is not committed. And more than that, you have liberal voters who are maybe looking at the conservatives, but could go back to the liberals. You've got NDP voters in the same situation. So at the height of conservative success, you could have a vote base that is well over half the Canadian vote population. However, if things go really wrong for the conservatives, you know, they're sitting at 40 plus percent, depending on which poll you're looking at on any given day. That number could actually sink below 30 percent if people abandon the party because that vote right now is so volatile and so soft and so profoundly uncommitted. And of course, that shouldn't surprise anyone, considering uh, we are still probably some many, many months away from another election. If you're Justin Trudeau, and frankly, if you're Jagmeet Singh, uh, you've got to have like some holes in your head if you think that that uh, going to the polls right now is is a good idea. 
Yeah, I, I don't expect we'll see an election this year. I, I don't like to make I don't like to make predictions like this, but I don't foresee know, a 2024 but... one. Shanti, yeah. as always, thank you so much. Okay, take care. Let's turn our gaze outwards a little bit. Although this year was a peculiar year because a lot of things that felt like there were problems that existed or things that were issues that were overseas very much played out here at home as well this year. Um, it felt like a real wake-up call for how geopolitics play out, not only abroad, but here at home. As the year began, the focus was very much still on the war in Ukraine and Canada's support for that country uh, as its war with Russia entered its second year. And that has been a foreign affairs issue that the government has always seemed to have a good grasp of. In fact, when Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky made his first visit as president to Canada, uh, he said as much. Another extremely important fact about you is that you never... Never ever make a political bet on hatred and enmity. And you are always on the bright side of history. Vladimir Zelensky, of course, paid his visit to Ottawa and Toronto in September. Uh, several months earlier, President Joe Biden had arrived in Ottawa, reaffirming that crucial relationship, despite some tensions behind the scenes over things such as Canada's low spending on defense. And I believe we have an incredible opportunity to work together so Canada and the United States can source and supply here in North America everything we need for reliable and resilient supply chains. Right. So, I mean, again, the, that, that was the good news on the foreign affairs front for Canada this year. But other issues crept up as the year uh, progressed. A big one was allegations that emerged of the scope and scale of foreign interference allegedly by the regime in Beijing on our political and electoral system. Uh, the prime minister did address this. Here's what he had to say back in March. We've seen uh, over the past number of uh, days and weeks, uh, many Canadians very concerned about the issue of foreign interference into our democracies, into our election processes. We share that concern. Of course, the answer was a special rapporteur who was the former Governor General David Johnston. That was a disaster. Johnston ended up having to resign. Uh, so that was a really difficult issue for the government this year. And then in September, the Prime Minister dropped a bombshell in Parliament, alleging that India was suspected of involvement in the shooting death of a prominent Sikh activist and separatist in BC. Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. 2023, again, felt like it was a year that Canada was delivered a very hard dose of geopolitical reality, a situation only made more clear by Hamas's attack on Israel on October the 7th and all that's ensued. And in 2024, of course, America's heading into a presidential election year, which further complicates absolutely everything. Joining me now with more on this is David Frum, columnist at The Atlantic and author of Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. David, as always, thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Maybe we could start with Canada and the world, because it feels like it's been a tumultuous 2023 as far yeah. as uh, Canada and its foreign relations are concerned. Uh, we saw what happened with India, China. Uh, there have been others. What's your take on, on what kind of 2023 it's been for Canada on the global stage? Well, I think the sharpest lesson for Canadians and, the sh and um, maybe the most upsetting uh, was the discovery that India, a country with which Canada has very close people to people ties, so many Canadians of Indian origin, um, uh, such a long relationship. Um, commit, apparently committed an assassination on Canadian soil. Um, 
And Canada then tried to speak up about this um, and found that um, because Canadian governments had not done the groundwork with friends and allies, that Canada found itself for some time quite isolated uh, in, in its protests against this apparent Indian action. There has now been a revelation that the Indians attempted such a thing unsuccessfully, in this case, on U.S. soil. And, uh, but the Americans have not been as forward-leaning as the Canadians have been. So the, the two shocks, I mean, the discovery that um, the world has intruded on Canada in this way and the discovery that Canada was, could not automatically count on the goodwill of, of partners in getting a resolution. Um, and partly because those partners were mindful that Canada had brought this problem on itself by looking the other way from a lot of extremist activity aimed against India that was being conducted on Canadian soil. So Canadians have a habit of um, interpreting all foreign affairs through the prism of domestic politics, especially domestic ethnic politics. Here was a reminder that that kind of neglect of the outside world has a cost. And watching it unfold, you got the impression that accusations that that the government had been far too, had turned a blind eye in many ways to China's activities, prompted yes. them to to jump on the on the India allegations in a way that India took offense to. I'm not sure, uh, you know, it's been quite receptive, obviously the relationship is different, but receptive to America's uh, wants, which is a thorough investigation of this. But when Canada sort of stood up and accused it publicly quickly, yeah. there was a lot of backlash. Well, the Indians have a very specific grievance against Canada, which is um, Canada really has been an incubator of anti-Indian extremism, um, uh, partly because of differences in the uh, configuration of the uh, Canadian Indian diaspora than the American Indian diaspora. Um, uh, the Canadian Indian diaspora is about half Sikh, half, uh, half non-Sikh. Um, and so uh, that politics, that political tension between Sikh aspirations and the aspirations of everyone else in India has really come home to Canada. And Canadian governments have... Um, tried to navigate that, but not just from a national security or managing foreign affairs point of view, but also from a point of view that um, a lot of Canadian politicians have wanted seek votes for not just general elections, but especially for leadership contests. Um, And they've looked, and some of the people who are best at delivering votes for your leadership contests are some of the worst actors in the Sikh community. And so Canada's looked the other way. As 20 years ago, it looked away from a lot of extremism in the Tamil community. As in recent years, it's looked away from a lot of, uh, you know, the activities of Hezbollah on Canadian soil, um, you know, as it's looked away as hundreds, apparently, of um, senior figures in the Iranian regime have acquired Canadian status and uh, impunity from their crimes against the Iranian people. And Canadian governments just have tended not to take national security very seriously. And 2023 has been a year when Canadians got a jolt about what happens when you uh, ignore the rest of the world. It doesn't go away. It just it finds ways to come to you. What's your sense of how that's being seen then in the halls of power, say, in Washington? Well, uh, on the, the India matter is a very good example of this. So uh, as we now know, the Americans completely agree that India, whatever that means, whether it's the prime minister or different people in the Indian state, but people in the Indian government uh, were behind assassination plots in North America, one unsuccessful in the United States, one successful in Canada, maybe even more. Um, and... Uh, but the United States has a lot of important equities in the U.S.-India relationship. It's not a relationship born of love, but it's a relationship born of, born of mutual need. So Canada went to the Americans and said, we need you really to back us up. You know, Canada, of course, it's a very important relationship, shared values. But, you know, Canada has really abdicated as an important strategic partner of the United States. It's not, and not just in military spending, but in its diplomatic presence, 
um, Canadian governments have been very inward focused. And, and so when you talk to people in Washington, even people, Canadians in Washington, they said, you know, we're not going to win this, this contest here in the United States because they need India. And, and we have not been as the kind of partner over the past few years that we should have been. Uh, so we're not going to get the support that we would like. Although it, it's not even clear what that would mean since it's never clear what Canada wanted uh, from in, in this crisis. Which is a repeated problem, I get the sense. We look at the events of October 7th, which are clearly still unfolding. Again, uh, Canada struggled to to voice a coherent, I think, position on what was happening in Gaza. Yeah. Look, what the, the Prime Minister very obviously wanted was for him not to be personally criticized. That was his top strategic priority, minimize personal criticism of me. Um, and so what he would do, so he would one day give a statement in which he uh, condemned terrorism and sexual violence, and the next day he condemned the response to terrorism and sexual violence. Uh, one day he said, we stand by Israel, and the next day he criticized Israel and said, please stop doing what you're doing. And uh, and it's, I think the only way to... Um, makes sense of it is is just like he just every day somebody would come in and criticize him and he would then do the okay well let me see if i can recoup the praise from that person and then 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 run to the other side of the room and then he'd get criticism in the other direction and he would run backwards Um, and of course in the end you end up as it becomes obvious that this is entirely about your personal um, poll numbers and ego needs you lose the respect of everybody Indeed. Uh, and again, just broadly for 2023, I mean, I, I think we both grew up in an era where the, the notion of Canada punching above its weight and sort of picking certain issues that it could go hard on and be functional or at least be effective. That feels like it's kind of lost. We've kind of lost our way over the last while. And I don't necessarily just want to criticize one government, but it feels like for a while now, Canada has been kind of adrift on these issues. Well, um, Canada for a long time had a military that was small, but um, surprisingly effective for its size. I, I don't think anybody was, I mean, with, without any, without disrespect to the people who constitute the Canadian military, um, you know, the best people in the world when they're flying 40-year-old planes, how effective are they going to be? When they're, when they're sailing 50-year-old ships, how effective are they going to be? Um, uh, when they don't, uh, when they can't, when, when they can't move around the planet, how effective are they going to be? After starving the military, Canada since starved its diplomatic services. Um, it doesn't, uh, it's counterterrorism and counterespionage services aren't as effective as they should be. I mean, all of these things cost money, and they're not things that Canadian governments want to spend money on. Um, they don't see a political payoff for having an effective CSIS, having an effective diplomatic corps, and so uh, all of these services are subjected to petty and crip- but petty economies that cumulatively have have a crippling effect. You don't notice that crippling effect until the moment comes when you l- turn to these services and say, "Okay, we need you today." And the service says, well, you know, you should have been here over the past decade when step by step you took away our ability to do what you want done at this moment. A bit like the Haiti situation might be a good example of that, although Canada was, was I mean, th- th- there is a perfect example of a country that Canada, may- maybe not something necessarily any country wants to get too involved in, but it is a place where Canada could have had an impact. It has ties, it has experience there, but we just didn't have the bandwidth to do it. Well, look, Canada, there, there are good reasons to keep out of the Haiti problem. Yeah. Um, but the, the reason for it, re, the reason to do it, would, there'd be really one reason to do it. I mean, it would be nice for Haiti, obviously, but the, the most important reason from a Canadian point of view is, say, okay, this is something that's going to be costly and difficult and potentially hazardous, um, but the Americans want us to do it, and we want to make sure that we have a notarized, a, a big diplomatic IOU 
notarized that we can cash in at a time when we're going to need it. Um, and so I understand why the Canadian government would have said no to that invitation, but that meant that you didn't have the IOU um, when you thought you needed it. And I, I don't want to say the Trudeau government has been completely unsuccessful, because I think they met their first year of managing the Trump administration was quite successful. Um, but on, on that, being a security partner has not been something that, that Canada has wanted to be. Um, and uh, and that, that has meant, for example, in the Ukraine conflict, which has been so close to Canadian hearts, where Canada's wanted to be um, generous to a place that so many Canadians have roots in, that you know you, you can't give the equipment that you don't own. And if you haven't invested in the equipment, uh, you can't give it away to people who need it more than you do. I gather, David, I mean, you've just written something in The Atlantic along with many others about what a new, second Trump administration could look like. Uh, this is going to get very real very quickly in 2024, yes. isn't it? Yes. Look, I want to say, say at the beginning, I, I believe that the balance of probabilities is that President Biden will be reelected. And that's only a matter of probabilities. It's not a matter of certainties. Um, the American economy is very strong. Uh, and although there's a lot of unhappiness expressed in polls, um, nonetheless, when you look at new business formation, when you look at uh, the Christmas spending uh, this shot, this holiday season, when you, you uh, look at um, Americans' willingness to go out for dinner, uh, that people are behaving as if they have confidence in the future and as if they feel um, they've got money in their pockets to spend. Um, still, it's possible. Um, I think that... Uh, a second Trump administration will just shake up um, the whole world. It'll, I think it'll be immediately plunged into chaos. The President Trump's, uh, return President Trump's top priority will be um, blowing up the American justice system to keep himself out of prison, which otherwise he's heading his, his to, to, toward. Uh, he'll be messing up U.S. alliances. He'll be, uh, if not formally withdrawing from NATO, making it clear that NATO partners can't count on the United States under his so-called leadership. So there's going to be, in Canada can't really buy an insurance policy against dysfunction uh, in the United States. In the first Trump term, the Trudeau people were able to do a, a quite good job for a year or two of managing the instability and unpredictability of the Trump year, uh, administration in Canada's interest. Um, and they were able uh, to preserve NAFTA. Um, it was it was relabeled, it was rebranded, it was made in, in some ways worse than it was before. It became more protectionist, but still it's the basic form of, of NAFTA is still there and Canada benefits from that enormously, as does Mexico, as does the United States, of course. Uh, the second Trump term will be much more chaotic, much more disastrous and much more difficult to manage if it can be managed at all. And no doubt, I mean, Trump, a political person that he is, will have noticed what's happened. I mean, when the first time he had to contend with the Trudeau government, Trudeau was new, he was popular, he was famous, let's be honest, something that Donald Trump tends to pay attention to. He'd be dealing with a very different uh, Justin Trudeau this time around, at least as far as the polls are concerned. Or at some point, he may be dealing with a new leader that he doesn't yeah. know, Pierre Polia. Yeah. Um, so I think the problems for um, whoever is Prime Minister of Canada will be the same. Um, and... Uh, Canada needs the border to work. Trump hates border and wants the border closed. Um, Canada needs the United States involved in relationships with partners. The United States does not. Canada needs not for there uh, to be um, some kind of stable economic order in the Pacific Ocean between the United States and China. Uh, you know, Trump is a, is a force of chaos and destruction. And Canada needs the U.S. government to work. And and it's going to be, you know, I, I, I spelled out in the Atlantic some of the things that the United States is going to be likely to do. I mean, Trump has talked, for example, about his desire to use the military to crush riots in American cities. Now, that's super illegal. Um, and 
uh, Trump is going to be issuing orders to generals that the generals are going to have to weigh because it's uh, you can't obey an illegal order in the United States. Um, there, there is a long, long tradition here. Um, look, people, the United States has often there have been many instances of middle level officers getting illegal orders from higher up officers, often to do with uh, stealing. Basically, the higher the higher up officer has some corrupt scheme. He tries to draw the lower ranked officers into it, and they have to say yes or no. And if they say yes, they end up being caught and going to prison. And if they say no, they get promoted. But the idea of illegal orders coming from the very top, from the commander in chief, that just hasn't happened before. That's going to be something that the United States is going to confront. And the, the U.S. military is the guarantor of Canada's security as well as, as as America's. And if the U.S. military is in chaos, Canada is going to be insecure. And in, when you look at the at the circumstances with which, and, and you you mentioned this, um, he's, Donald Trump. I mean, again, the, the likelihood in a two horse race, you never know. Uh, but Donald Trump will have learned from his first from yeah. his first term, and that therein lies the issue. You, you think that uh, that 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 Trump comes back angrier and better prepared? Yes, um, and also with a much more focused agenda. Look, first term Trump basically wanted to steal and to bask in adulation. Um, he, he didn't have much of a goal. Second term Trump ha- would have a goal, which is he wants to not go to prison. And, and that means he has to wreck the Department of Justice. He wants to stop protests against wrecking the Department of Justice. That means he has to corrupt the military. And of course, he still wants to bask in adulation and to steal. As you look ahead to 2024, uh, both from a geopolitical and a Canadian perspective, what do you think, what, where, do, where do you see the surprises, do you think? I know it's hard to predict surprises, but there must be things on your radar right now that, I mean, when you look back at the predictions for 2023, a lot of them were kind of right, but not really. You can never predict. But what are you looking for uh, early in 2024? Well, I'm going to be following uh, with interest, does the uh, Chinese economy continue to shrink, not to shrink, but does its growth continue to shrink? Have we seen the end of the era of fast Chinese growth? And um, does the end of the era of fast Chinese growth make China more aggressive, that they try to um, take risks to make up for? They, they can't deliver uh, a rising standard of living to their population, but maybe they can deliver some foreign excitement. Um, you know, the, India's turn toward authoritarianism and um, uh, control of the press, control of social media is really upsetting and demoralizing. Once the world's largest democracy and now on its way to being the world's largest former democracy. Um, I pay a lot of attention to Mexico. Uh, there's mm-hmm. going to be a, a presidential election in Mexico this summer. Mexico has also been a sad, sad democratic backslider. Um, and does that continue? Um, Mexico uh, has lost, according to the official records, um, 130,000 people have died violently in the six years of President Lopez Obrador. That's 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 a Ukraine-style war. It's criminal violence, of course, not um, not military violence. The number, the real number, may well be higher because there are a lot of people just disappear. Um, does Mexico continue on its path toward um, instability, turbulence, and that has a lot of implications? Uh, Canada feel, thinks it's far away from Mexico, but it's not really because uh, anything bad that happens in Mexico draws in the United States, and anything that draws in the United States affects Canada. Well, David, as always, thank you so much. Thank you.